Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Welcome to the podcast that is always up to speed with Formula One. My name is Mark Hamilton. Joining me as always is my co-host, my colleague, my friend, Mr. Mark Daly. Before I pass it over to you and get a sense of how your week was, we are officially just hours away from seeing the first car of 2022. It has to be the Haas and it's... It's oh. a bit of a cop-out because it's just <laughs> going to be a livery reveal, but still we are hours away, which means the season is upon us. The off-season is over, and boy, was it a short off-season. Six oh, weeks, man, seven weeks. It, it feels like just yesterday that we were concluding that spectacle of a championship, and here we are. My friend, all of that aside, how the heck are you? I'm doing really, really good. And hey, in in the live chat, Rocky says how to be real. Sorry, about to release the new car, Eve. So you know, he's a, he's yeah, in I the love spirit it. as well. So we're all <laughs> thinking about. And I barely tripped over it because you know, basically, I'm I, I'm really stoked. It's almost weekend, and yeah, where did that off season go? And also, has anybody figured out what uh, what what happened to Lewis? I mean, he's still radio silence, but you know. I think maybe Lewis has discovered something that maybe walking away from social media isn't such a bad thing. I know that he's got his own reasons for it. And and sometimes I find that myself when I go away from holiday, I try to like t- totally detach myself from Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and all those different things. And and sometimes I feel when I get home, I almost feel like obligated to start trolling or scrolling through my, uh, not not trolling, that's not that's something else that's bad. <laughs> that's, but some, scrolling that's something to, else you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's something else I do. Uh, but I like to Cat start fishing. scrolling through like like my different like social media channels just almost out of like obligations so maybe he's uh, kind of found like a little bit kind of like a piece in that but anyways we miss him and uh, and hope that uh, that he comes back soon but yeah and also not only is it uh, the the eve of the first kind of like pseudo sort of like car release but also the olympic game starts uh, this weekend which is kind of cool so Lots of things to look forward to and keep us distracted. In the meantime, we got the Super Bowl coming up as well shortly, and that's always exciting. Big news this week, Tom Brady retired after, what, 700 years in the NFL? And, you know, I mean, the guy, sure, everybody talks about how great Tom Brady is. He hasn't won a single world championship in Formula One. I mean, he won a bunch of Super Bowls. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I, I, I can't take uh, credit for he that one. Did, he did throw that phenomenal pass boat to boat to Daniel Ricciardo a couple of years ago. So he's he's close to uh, he's close enough to F1. You know, actually, out of everybody in Formula One, I could see Danny Ricciardo doing something with like a, an NF style, NFL star like uh, Tom Brady. But I mean, talk about big shoes to fill. I mean, that's uh, maybe not only a once in a generation player, but a once in a lifetime uh, player. So so certainly that, that'll be a, a big, big void uh, come next year in the NFL. But lots of great quarterbacks coming up. But we're not here to talk about football. We are here to talk about Formula One. And like you say, I mean, the offseason is is slowly but surely ebbing away. I mean, we're what now? Six weeks away from the the, the season opener? That, that's going to fly, bro. That's going to go really, really quick. Absolutely. Absolutely. We, we obviously, as we just... Uh, 
As we just hinted at, we see the Haas car tomorrow. It's going to be something resembling a dummy or a show car, and it's really an opportunity for get them to get their sponsors and their livery out front. Red Bull, as we discovered a couple of days ago, is going to reveal their contender February 9th, so they're actually going to sneak out a day ahead of Aston Martin. McLaren, as we've known for some time, is going to drop on the 11th. Alpha Tauri is going to drop on the 14th. Ferrari the 17th. Mercedes the 18th. Alpine, February 21st. And Alfa Romeo, February 27th. The only team that hasn't yet announced mm. their unveil is the Williams team, which is a, a little bit of a surprise because typically they get their car out in front of the pack when it comes to these off-season reveals. I should add one thing real quick before we get on with this huge packed agenda that we have today because a couple of people have been asking... I'm hoping, and you actually asked me right before we started the show, I'm hoping to officially be in my new studio, <laughs> officially hoping to be in my new studio, not next week, the week after. And I'll, I'll share some sneak peek and some photos on the Twitter feed just to show everybody how it's uh, coming along. And then in other very personal news, I turned... 41 today in metric. So if I was to cross <laughs> the border and visit the US, I would be about 34. There so you as go. soon as the border opens, as soon as Trudeau allows us to cross the border, I will be <laughs> down there so I can de-age by about eight years. Well, bro, you don't look a day over 40. So there you go. <laughs> and happy birthday, uh, by the way. Happy birthday. Thank you, my friend. I, I feel like I uh, shouldn't have eaten that birthday cake I bought for you and then ate, <laughs> ate for myself. But hey, you know, so social I, distancing, I, I, doing, you know. I do flybys to your house on a Friday night to drop off USB cables <laughs> and charging things for iPhones. Yet your birthday present to me doesn't even get out of your kitchen. How? I know. That shows where the friendship yeah. is. <laughs> I, I have a problem when it comes to um, you know, delicious things that linger a little bit or even not that long in my kitchen. So that's uh, completely uh, on me. But I'm going to change the you. subject as quickly as possible and get out of this sticky situation. And I want to jump Ooh. into the mailbag. You see how I did that? <laughs> um, let's go to the mailbag. Had a, a good uh, email this week from Charles Brooker. And Charles says, hello, chaps. I'm an enjoyer of the podcast. I'm looking forward to some predictions for the new season. I enjoyed your discussion about the very strange situation with the Honda engines and Red Bull. I find the conversation often misses out the B team and Alpha Tauri might well be the pioneers with the new engine. And this might be incredibly interesting in relation to Pierre Gasly's future. I would be interested in your views on this. Best wishes, Charles from Scotland. Yeah, you know, I think that's a great email. I think he uh, really... Uh, makes a couple of really, really good points there. I mean, of course, we still have no idea what, what the new engine formula is going to look like that's going to drop uh, most likely in 2026. I mean, they've talked to a whole, dropped a whole lot of tasty, juicy nuggets out there of where they're, where this discussion and where these investigations, I guess you could say, into the new power units is going. But I, I think that uh, more to the point just about the the, the, the B team and Alpha Tauri may be surprising people maybe in 2022. And I do think that they get overlooked a little bit because yes, they are part of the Red Bull family. Yes, they are the B team or the junior team or the feeder team, if you will. For that uh, Red Bull Driver Academy to come that that gateway into Formula One and move up to the Red Bull team and then usually back down again. There's a bit of a revolving door, but I love how he sort of dropped in that 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 little tasty reference to Pierre Gasly and his future. 
And Pierre, you know, we, we have to be honest. I mean, when he got his shot with Red Bull a couple of years ago, it didn't start out great. He got in the car, wrecked it in, in testing at Barcelona and really hampered not just to his opportunity to get used to the car, but they also had to use up a lot of their spare parts. So also affected Max and his, his testing. And it really kind of started off his career with that team on the wrong foot. They changed him out halfway through the year with Alex Albon. Alex had a great audition if you will that second half of the year and then disappointed in 2020 and then of course he got dropped as well but meanwhile Pierre gets and I don't like saying relegated or demoted but he goes back to Alpha Tauri because I find that's kind of derogatory um it, maybe not derogatory but I, I think that maybe it's maybe not the kindest way to describe it because I think uh, Pierre is a very, very talented driver. I mean, he's won a Grand Prix. Sure, it was in topsy-turvy you know, circumstances at, uh, at Monza last year. But hey, a race win is a race win is a race win. You know, you're still the first car to get across the line. And of course, uh, he had some help that uh, some guys like Charles Leclerc, uh, Lewis Hamilton, Max, they all had bad races for one reason or another. Or they didn't finish. However, he won a Grand Prix, but I think he's had, I think 2021 for me was his best year in Formula One. And with all these driver contracts that are expiring at the end of 2022, I think that uh, Pierre finds himself in a pretty good position. I think that uh, that he, well, depending how he does this year, of course, but I think that he could be positioning himself uh, nicely. And if uh, Red Bull, or sorry, AlphaTauri design a good car and they have a good season because you know, let's face it, it is an independent manufacturer that there, there's going to be some back and forth between the two teams because they have the common power unit. And let's let's be honest that, uh, well, what would have been the Toro Rosso a couple of years ago would have been basically a test bed for the Honda engine and that whole basically try before you buy <laughs> when they decided to move away from 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 Renault and then uh, pick up the Honda power. But yeah, it's that's that's really, really interesting. I mean, I, I think that they could be a little bit of a, su- a surprise. Obviously, they don't have nearly the same amount of funding or resources as Red Bull proper do, but maybe that's not going to be such a major thing in this new cost cap era. And then maybe even moving ahead in the future as we get into not only this uh, new era, but potentially four or five years down the road when the new power units come online as well. What do you think, Mark? Yeah, big shout out to Charles. I thought this was a fantastic email and it really got me thinking about this team and it really got me thinking about Gasly's future. And that's one of the questions that's maybe most commonly asked within F1 Twitter and the F1 community mm-hmm. at large is where is he going to go? And there's this perception or this belief or this understanding that he's earned a promotion. But I think when I survey the Formula One landscape today, tomorrow, 2022, 2023, I keep coming back to this thought that he might already be in the best possible landing position. And and hear me out on this one. Obviously, Alpha Tauri, much to my furor, has functioned as a B team. And the reason for my furor is I think this should be banned from Formula One. There's 10 teams. There's an absolute, I, I would say... Demand for more teams, demand for more autonomy. You shouldn't have one corporate entity that is able to own two of the 10 teams, 20% of the grid, and use one of them as a feeder system. To me, that's appalling and should be banned. But hear me out. The Alpha Tauri team is blessed with that phenomenal Honda power unit, which obviously rode Max Verstappen to a championship last year. And obviously he was a big part of that too, but it was a phenomenal engine that is now championship caliber. It has that phenomenal red box gearbox and it 
seems, and we don't know necessarily yet, but it seems like the Alpha Terry is going to carry as much of the suspension componentry from the new Red Bull as the regulations permit. So on the surface, this car is going to be extremely comparable to the Red Bull car, which we know and we expect is going to be a very capable contender next year. Mm -hmm. The other thing that we keep going back to is that the new technical regulations are going to result in a grid where the cars are far more comparable than they have been in the past, meaning that the the, the difference, that delta, the performance delta between the Red Bull and the Alpha Tauri will be much, much, much finer than it's ever been before. And when piloted by a great car, I don't see any reason why Pierre Gasly shouldn't be able to consistently contend for podiums. And I think if Alpha Tauri get that package right and the Honda Power Unit's everything that it was this past year and they're able to dial in a couple more tweaks before the homologous why can't I say that word before the freeze begins on March 1st and September 1st, uh, respectively, I just think he's in a really great, comfortable position. And obviously that team, that factory adore him. And if they continue to function with some degree of autonomy from Red Bull, but still, I would say benefiting from some of their core assets, I think he's in a really great place. And I think for him to pack up and move to another team would be unnecessarily disruptive. And we've seen cases in the past where Mm -hmm. a big move happens and it doesn't work out for that driver. We know that Fernando Alonso going to McLaren twice didn't work out. And we know that when Daniel Ricciardo left McLaren for Renault, McLaren Red Bull for for Renault slash Alpine that didn't work out and I just feel like he's got something there they've got a really great package I think that the delta between AlphaTauri and the Red Bull simply because of the way Mm -hmm. the technical regulations are designed is going to be razor thin and I think they're both going to be hyper competitive cars this year yeah the other thing is too uh, Pierre now is 25 I mean he's been Formula One for a while I mean like I say I mean he's had his ups and downs but over the past year 18 months I think he's uh, getting into a pretty good spot and at 25 I mean and a guy that's uh, in the form and driving the way that he is, I mean, I think that's like the perfect age that you might be wanting to build something around a guy like that, a driver like that. So, I mean, I think if uh, Pierre Gasly, uh, you might be feeling pretty good about yourself at the moment. And um, who knows, maybe sticks with Alpha Tauri, maybe depending on the musical chairs with uh, contracts expiring at the end of this year. And drivers, not the contracts really mean anything in Formula One. And the fact that they're all locked away in some secret secret bunker in Geneva or wherever it was, <laughs> you know. Yeah. I mean, things can change really quickly. That's my point. And, and who knows? I mean, somebody might uh, decide that Pierre is going to be their guy. But if not... Who knows, maybe, um, well, that, that's the thing too, is uh, you, you never really know with uh, Red Bull. I mean, as, as much as they do have this uh, driver's academy, I don't always feel like there's a ton of loyalty. I mean, the way that they've kind of like no. moved people around like that. And and I think it would be a real shame if Pierre kind of found himself in getting pushed out for wh- whatever reason and he didn't catch on with another team. Because I think I think he's a good guy. I think he's a good driver. And I think he has a lot to offer the right team. I want to add one other thing real quick, and, and this it was kind of the rabbit hole that this email sent me down, but just as a quick reminder to everybody that as close as Toro Rosso slash Alpha Tauri and Red Bull have been over the years, mm-hmm. there have been times where they've diverged in terms of power unit and, and some of their design philosophy. As a reminder, Toro Rosso actually rocked a Ferrari power unit from 2007 yes. to 2013. Great point. They went to Renault to align with the principal team from Milton Keynes, the Red Bull team from 2014 to 2015. In 2015, Red Bull had that huge falling out with Renault, and they decided (laughs) that they were going to separate both teams and search for new power units for both teams. So for 2016, 
AlphaTauri, sorry, AlphaTauri slash Toro Rosso with the STR11 actually rocked a 2015 spec Ferrari power unit while yep. Red Bull yep. temporarily restored their relationship with Renault and continued running Renault power units. Toro Rosso then for 2017 reverted to a Renault power unit for 17 and 18 before taking the step into the Honda power unit in 2019, a year ahead of Red Bull. So just going back to what Charles's original question was, and just in the context of that line of discussion, Red Bull via Alpha Tauri slash Toro Rosso really use that B team to pioneer and function as a test bed for that Honda power unit. So by the time they migrated that power unit into the Red Bull, they already had a year of test bench and real world track knowledge and experience with that unit. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I think that's, uh, I think that's a great point. I mean, that, that is the benefit of having a, uh, having a B team around. Again, it shouldn't <clears throat> be allowed, but they've clearly leveraged it to their advantage, both from a driver development perspective and a power unit development perspective. Yeah, exactly. <clears throat> anyway, so thanks for the email, uh, Charles. That was great. And, you know, I went to school with the Charles. He always went by Chuck and I always thought that was such a, a, a cool nickname. And then, I don't know, do you think it's time to maybe resurrect those Chuck Norris memes? No, nah, it's not 2013 anymore, nope. is it? I mean, if we do that, then... 2013? Is it, it was earlier than was that. Was it earlier than that? I mean, I guess if we resurrect... I mean, I guess the Chuck Norris memes are probably best left in the past because, I mean... If uh, we go there, then we probably have to, uh, you know, dredge up the, uh, you know, start rickrolling people, which maybe is uh, oh, may- maybe not the best Understand. thing we can do. did so anyway well good job demonetizing this <laughs> podcast by the way <laughs> well I, I mean rick he can come at us it's not like we have a lot of money and i think i cut it off right before we needed the uh you know before we had to pay okay. royalties anyways but i mean it? on that yeah. note i think i've officially gone bananas you know after three years into a pandemic i think you know i've you know kind of lost it so i think this is a good place to uh, hit reset go to break and we come back uh let's get into some of the news so uh, on that sad note, <laughs> don't go away, guys. We'll be right back. Passion, drive, and patience. The formula for winning championships is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. Superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to make your car the MVP and bring home huge wins. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. All right, welcome back to the show. Now, not featuring Rick Astley, moving into the second segment of the show. And uh, yes. Um, anyways, Mark, where do we want to start? Oh, I thought the, first of all, there was uh, something cool in here that you had in the show notes, February 1st, 2010. So a dozen years ago now, if you can believe it a little bit more, cause it's uh, February late on February 3rd tonight. Also happy year of the tiger, happy lunar new year to all my Asian yeah. friends out there. I, um, I'm kind of jealous I didn't get a chance to celebrate this year. But anyways, uh, let's hope uh, Year of the Tiger is a good one. Anyways, February 1st, 2010, Michael Schumacher hits the track 
in the Mercedes W01 for the very first time in Valencia in Spain. And well, where the hell did the last 12 years go? <laughs> but that that's a big moment. That is a, a notable milestone in Formula One history. Yeah, cool. All right. So, <laughs> You're yeah. expecting me to say something. I know, and I hate it when you do that. Sometimes uh, you just leave me hanging, but uh, I guess but, but after sometimes those shenanigans I before the break, to, yeah. I deserved it. Anyways, go ahead, sir. No, that's all I was going to say. And you know, it's interesting. And, and I think the context for that one's pretty important, right? Like yeah. 2009 was that Cinderella season where uh, Ross Braun had taken over the remnants of that Honda factory team and they'd shoved the Mercedes power unit into it and they'd I don't. I shouldn't say they ran away with the drivers and the constructors' championships because it became quite tight at the end when Red Bull started surging. But ultimately, they then took that car mm-hmm. that was this hodgepodge of Honda and workshop components and then turned it into a factory team. But it's crazy to think that it's already been 12 years now since that Mercedes W01 piloted by Michael Schumacher hit the track. And what a phenomenal run it's been for the Silver Arrows. <laughs> You know, it's interesting, too, because those early days of Mercedes, their re-entry into Formula One, it's almost like a footnote because it's just incredible how they they really went from just uh, another team on the grid to this Formula One powerhouse. And I mean, once we hit 2014, I mean, they just went into the stratosphere and they've never looked back. I mean, to go from where they were from those first tentative shaky laps in that uh, W01 to where they just exploded onto the scene in 2014, that is a pretty short amount of time to to get it that right. And then not only just win Absolutely. a championship, but dominate for basically the next decade. It's amazing. It really is. And don't forget as well that when Lewis signed with McLaren for 2013 in mm-hmm. 2012, that was a heavily criticized decision that the F1 pundits and the F1 analysts globally could not wrap their heads around the fact that he was signing with that team. And I think the negative reaction to his signing was basically driven by the fact that the team wasn't particularly competitive. They were better in 13. Lewis won a couple of races. They were looking better. They were rounding into form, but them Mm -hmm. winning championships and running off a dynastic period like they did was far from guaranteed. Oh yeah. I mean, uh, I think that they would have been happy if they could have won a championship uh, here or there, but I mean, the way that, uh, like you say, they came and then dominated uh, basically for a full decade is just uh, absolutely astonishing. And I I think that, uh, I think they would be quite, well, I think they'd be more than forthcoming in admitting that it's far exceeded any and all of their expectations. Anyways, not talking about Mercedes now, moving over to that other team who isn't Mercedes, which is uh, Red Bull, the current Drivers' World Championship. I'm going to just watch and make sure I don't get any bottles thrown at me from angry Lewis fans. I'm trying to stay out of this one, but... Anyways, team principal at Red Bull, Christian Horner, has um, kind of come out and said that he wants the sports management to make some decision about the implementation or the running of sprint races in 2022. We had three last year. We're going to have, uh, what was it, six this year. And it's uh, been up in the air. And I think we only talked about it uh, last week, uh, wasn't it, Mark? Or just within the last couple of weeks. Uh, But I'm glad that uh, perhaps, um, you know, Christian is saying something. But if you read between the lines, especially what Zach Brown, CEO of McLaren, was saying last week. I mean, he was being pretty pointed that the the, the whole debate and the whole snag in what's happening with the, with the sprint races is not down to basically 
eight of the teams. It's basically Mercedes and Red Bull is are, are, are the teams that are holding it up. Is is pretty much what Zach was uh, in, inferring. I mean, it's it's he's. I guess how you could have said it is, Zach. How do you want to accuse Mercedes and Red Bull of holding up the process <laughs> of sprint races without saying that Mercedes and Red Bull are holding up the process of sprint races for twenty twenty two? But it is what it is, oh. right? Well. What we have here are basically seven or eight teams on the grid that really see the value in sprint qualifying weekends. And the reason they see value is because they pump additional revenue into Liberty. So Liberty is going to generate additional revenue through hosting fees, from sanctioning fees, and they're going to generate additional revenue from streaming and from their TV network partners. So for seven or eight teams on the grid, this is a good news story. Where the disconnect, though, is coming from is that two of the teams, though maybe three, are demanding that, hey, if we're going to participate in six sprint qualifying sessions, we want to see the cost cap bump up by $5 million. And then the other teams that are saying, hey, the reason we like this is because of the incremental revenue. They now see this as a disadvantage, which is, hey, it doesn't matter if we're going to earn some additional revenue because all of a sudden the big dogs, the teams that have outspent us for the past two decades are going to have a financial advantage once again because they want to increase the cost cap. So I think, and Jonathan Noble from motorsport.com wrote today, that the understanding now is that we probably won't see six qualifying or sprint qualifying weekends this year, that Mm -hmm. as a compromise, especially given the fact that the teams are going through some pretty, pretty paramount changes in terms of the cars and the arrow and all of the different things that we're going through this year and ongoing is that as a compromise, we'll probably revert back to three sprint qualifying weekends with the aim of getting back to six. But ultimately we would have had six this year. Mm -hmm. Maybe we still will, but it just came down to the fact that as as Zach Brown said, and I quote, one team in particular wanted a five million dollar budget cap increase, which was just ridiculous and had no rational facts behind it. And one of the other things that I did think was really interesting is that somebody had written, I think it was on Reddit and this had never occurred to me, but they'd made this point that the number of laps that the cars drive during the sprint qualifying session really isn't any different than the number of laps that they would have driven during free practice three. And again, the stresses on the car are much greater and there's much greater risk of damage, but ultimately the mind being put on these cars isn't really that different. So for these teams to say, hey, we want to do it, but you need to bump up the budget cap for $5 million, that's a disadvantage to seven teams on the grid, and they're just having none of it. And Zach Brown is just being very justifiably vocal about his distaste for the fact that presumably Red Bull or Mercedes are the ones that are campaigning for that big bump. Yeah, also, uh, you have to take into account uh, not only the fact that they've, uh, they're have they potentially going to reduce it from six down to three sprint events uh, this year, but they were also offering a compensation package to, to the to the teams. They're going to get 500 grand dollars for uh, the first five events and then 150 grand for each uh, race or sprint event uh, beyond that which was going to put in about two and a half million or 2.65 million into the pockets of each of the teams so it wasn't like they were going to be out uh, completely out of pocket but uh, supposedly allegedly that wasn't right, good enough right. uh, for for one or two of these uh, teams according to, to Zach and I think it's important that uh, some of these uh, team principals and other execs uh, speak up and and like I say I mean I've got a lot of time for for, for Zach Brown and I like Zach Brown in Formula One because I have the feeling that uh, Zach being an American and although he's has decades of experience in Formula or sorry in motorsport I think that uh, the, the way that he came into Formula One 
um, I, I just don't feel that he's as political or, or sort of drawn into the sort of traditional politics of uh, Formula One. I think he's a little bit more down to earth and a little bit more grounded when it comes to that stuff. So when, when he has something to say, even though he's being kind of diplomatic and not coming out and saying it exactly... I think that it's uh, important uh, nonetheless. Okay, next story. I think we have uh, enough time before we go to another break here, a couple of minutes uh, down the road. So um, Mercedes expects that uh, perhaps that uh, the 2022 cars are going to be what they say relatively similar in performance to the 2021 cars. Now, I think this is uh, interesting, and this comes from uh, Mercedes technical uh, director Mike Elliott. And uh, who made this uh, revelation or this um, maybe not a re- re- revelation, but offered this opinion that uh, that these cars might not be as drastically different to, to drive than uh, what we've seen uh, before. So anyways, uh, he was speaking in a, a video uh, that was uh, published by uh, Mercedes. Elliot had the following to say, quote, the overall performance of the news, uh, new cars is probably not going to be very different from the old ones. Obviously, the intention of these regulations was to try and improve overtaking, and it will be a little bit of time before whether we uh, whether we can see whether that's actually happening. Uh, the car is a bit heavier. The power unit on the E10 fuel is going to perform slightly differently, and the way the aerodynamics uh, aerodyn- pardon me aerodynamics are going to work, and the setup of the car that goes with it will be different as well. Until we get the best out of that, until we've developed that through testing and the first few races, we're not really going to know. But overall, I suspect the performance will be relatively similar to last year end quote that is interesting because i mean you've uh lando came out and said that he he felt that the cars might be similar to driving a formula two car and he wasn't the only one i can't remember what what was it bottas that had a similar opinion that uh, perhaps they might be more like f2 cars and formula one like or that this previous generation of formula one cars so get a lot of uh, different uh, differing uh, opinions on that and the exciting thing is we will know basically in just over a month's time <laughs> what these cars are actually going to be like and we'll get some driver reactions which will be very very interesting once they get to, to the tracks and even before Bahrain these this sort of this closed shakedown they're going to have at Barcelona before they fly off to the Middle East I will be very interested to see what sort of revelations or any comments that uh, that that sort of trickle out from that uh, that event into the public uh, domain uh, will will be really fascinating. So we'll see. I I don't know if it'll be kind of a lock and key or how forthcoming the teams and drivers will be. 2021 was a bit of a reprieve for me because I truthfully admittedly was was dreading the transition to the 2021 slash 2022 spec cars because I felt it was a fairly significant performance compromise to build more raceable cars in the sense that, hey, we're going with a much more standardized package to reduce some of that dirty air to increase raceability. But for me, 2020, 2021, I really felt was the golden age of Formula One that this is as good as it's ever going to get. This Mm -hmm. is as fast as we'll potentially ever see a Formula One car on track. And a year ago, you and I were sitting here talking about the fact that, hey, the 2022 Challengers, they could be five seconds a lap slower. And on paper, that is absolutely absurd but on tv you would never actually notice that and then and then the news started breaking out like well maybe they're going to be three seconds slower 
and then maybe two seconds slower. And now more and more of what we're hearing from inside sources, those that are close to the wind tunnels and the simulation models is, hey, maybe they're gonna be pretty similar. And maybe by the end of 2022, they could be on par or even faster than the cars that we saw before. Now, they'll be faster in different parts of the tracks and different parts of, or in different sectors, but Great overall point. the lap times might actually be might actually be lower. So when you mm -hmm. hear people like Lando and we've heard some other people talk about, hey, the characteristics of these cars are more like an F2 car. They're not necessarily speaking in terms of acceleration. They're talking more about the, the driving characteristics of the car, how it turns in, how you can rotate the car and things like that. But uh, it is interesting that we've seen this massive slash in the amount of expense that teams are allowed to put into building these cars. And we know that Red Bull and Mercedes were spending two or three or $400 million developing <laughs> their cars in the last couple of years. Now they're going to be spending 140 like everyone else. And mm -hmm. the cars might be the same speed, which is just, it's incredible. And it's really credit to the FIA and, and Liberty who worked obviously very close with them to come up with the new, with the new spec, these new cars and the new aero formula. So we don't know any of this. We're just speculating, but hopefully within the next couple of weeks, we'll get a pretty good sense of one, what these cars are capable of from a lap time perspective and two, have they actually solved any of this dirty air issue? Because we thought they'd solved dirty air going into 2010. We mm -hmm. thought they'd solved dirty air going into 2014. Have they actually done it this time? Because we've seen the simulations, we've seen the models. All year last year, F1 Liberty, they were flexing all over that 2022 dummy car that they were bringing to every single event but we don't know yet, but we will in a few weeks, which is super exciting. You know, I, yeah, exactly. It is super exciting. And, you know, that's one of the things I love about uh, Formula One and the challenge of engineering. That's why I like uh, other things like uh, military and civilian aircraft uh, and the the extreme engineering challenges that they're facing there and the, the space program that we see all these exciting developments that are going into uh, companies like SpaceX and and, and Virgin Galactic and, uh, and Jeff Bezos and all these uh, different things, the, these engineering challenges and how people are able to take these problems and overcome them <clears throat> and especially like in formula one in that context it's just like we always think oh well you know the the regs are coming in to slow them down it's going to ruin the spectacle but year upon year it, they, they do seem to slow them down but it seems that the, that the engineers and the designers always find a way to to overcome these uh, deficits and the, the the performance and the speed slowly creeps up and sometimes you know it, it, it's uh, faster than others and uh, these deficits uh, are overcome. As long as they don't throw the stupid groove tires back on, they find another way to prevent the cars uh, from, from getting too, too, uh, too fast. I mean, it's awesome. I mean, especially when you see the cars throwing that the drivers throwing them through the corners, like at uh, some of the, those awesome combos of corners, say at Silverstone, or even like at, uh, at Monaco when they go around the swimming pool and they're literally inches away from the barriers and just the speed that the drivers are carrying these cars through the corners and uh, it, it's just absolutely amazing. And uh, it, it is just a, a joy and a pleasure to watch these uh, cars uh, drive. Uh, e even sometimes I, I find myself uh, kind of losing, uh, you know, sometimes losing track of the race because they, they are just phenomenal pieces of uh, machinery. Anyways, Mark, let's take another uh, break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, ESPN and some of their desires with what they want to see uh, happening uh, with their rights uh, to Formula One. So we'll do that in just a moment. So guys, don't go away. We'll be back in just a short break few seconds thing anyways we'll be right back another day is here and you're ready for it what to wear check breakfast lunch and dinner check planning for what's next and how to save for it 
That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Okay, and we are back. Thank you all for joining in tonight. Uh, thank you uh, one and all for joining in uh, on the live stream. Uh, Rocky's been pretty vocal. Uh, a couple of things he had to say. Not a big fan of the sprints. But uh, he thought maybe the technical changes we're going to see in 2022 might make it a little bit more interesting. And that's that's a great point. Uh, we, we talk about how might uh, really uh, or, or the desires to really increase the overtaking. But in that sprint racing, if uh, overtaking does become easier, maybe we see more action in that. But then I guess uh, it comes down to how much do the... Uh, do the drivers themselves want to trade some paint to steal a, a phrase? How aggressive do they want to get and uh, how much, uh, how many chances do they want to take? Because I mean, anytime you take a car or try to overtake a car, I mean, there is that always that, that potential for, for, for contact, right? I mean, even in a clean overtake, I mean, you could, uh, you know, you could break a little bit uh, too late, maybe get in a bit of a dirty part of the track and you outbreak yourself, slide in the car, What you know, whatever. I mean, there's there's always that risk. So ultimately, at the end of the day, I mean, that potential to overtake might be there, but uh, ultimately that decision comes down to the person behind the steering wheel. So anyways, let's move on to the next story. So ESPN are keen, quote unquote, to ride the wave of Formula One's uh, growth in the United States a lot longer. Now, this I think is uh, interesting because we've obviously seen a huge surge of interest in Formula One in the United States and in North America. Well, globally, I think uh, in in the past year, I mean, DTS and uh, the the way that uh, that series has really taken the world by storm I think was, they were just really, I think, poised. They, they were just in the right place at the right time. I mean, especially two years ago when the pandemic started, we were all sitting at home. We were all looking for things to do. And it just really captured a lot of people's imaginations. And then once we got those initial months of the pandemic behind us, Formula One got that 17 race season under, our, like, uh, they, they ran, ran that thing off. We got a championship. Sure, it wasn't uh, the, the same that we were used to in previous years, but credit to them. They did it. And and I think that really helped build the interest and uh, the, the DTS again with that uh, the, the season they came out well about a year ago season three really got people jacked going into 2021 and the the stage and the desire to see an exciting championship was there right from the very uh, beginning and now you see other uh, TV rights uh, holders like ESPN uh, who've had the rights uh, for uh, F1's broadcast uh, in the United States in 2018 when they took over from NBC saying that they want to stay on board a lot longer. Now, I think this is ultimately what's going to really drive it, you know, pun intended, uh, to the next level, is if you get different uh, broadcasters really starting to, to to fight it out for the broadcast rights to, to Formula One. Let's not forget, I mean, there was some uh, rumors last year that maybe Netflix themselves were going to try and get in on the, the broadcasting rights or maybe even outright buy Formula One themselves and make it their own thing and broadcast it on their platform, whatever. But... I think this is a. I think this is an exciting bit of uh, news. Let me be very, very clear. When Liberty bought Formula One, they did so because they thought they could extract more value from it as a product. And when they looked at the global landscape of sports, I think they recognized that hey, the market that 
presented the most financial opportunity was the U.S. And this is why it's so important for them to get Miami off the ground. And it's also why it's so important for them to get Vegas off the ground. And I'm very confident we'll hear an announcement on Vegas within the next three to six months. And I don't know anything. I just, I feel like that is where we're It feels like it would be a good fit for Formula One to me. Definitely. The main impetus for this, though, is the best and easiest way for Formula One to extract value, financial value out of the U.S. market is through streaming and through television. Mm -hmm. It's really difficult to do that if there's only one race in the U.S. and it's very regional. If you have three strategically located races that account for the Southwest, you've got one in Vegas, which is a destination city, and you want to have one on the East Coast down in Miami, which is another destination city, you're in prime position to now go knock on the door of your network television partner and say, hey, Yep. We are now extremely, extremely popular. We can see your ratings are growing exponentially. We have three races in the U.S. You're going to need to cough up a much bigger chunk of change if you're going to want to remain a broadcast partner. So ESPN obviously recognizes that some growth here. And again, they've reported that 2021 was their most viewed F1 season on American television on record. They saw an average viewership of almost nine 950,000 or so, which was 50% increase on 2020. It's also 200,000 more than their best record previously, which was set back in 1995. Now, that said, all of that sounds really great. It sounds super sexy, but mm-hmm. 950,000 people per race is still nothing, nothing in the global landscape of American sports. And it's not enough to it, help it, them it doesn't compare to like NFL numbers, for example. Not even close, or yeah. the NBA, or yeah, a exactly. Sunday night Major League Baseball game in the middle of the summer. But it's good. And it's from a trajectory project or from a trajectory trajectory position it's it's good but ultimately f1 wants to have three races in the u.s it helps them create a a i would say a more solidified base that enables them to extract more from their streaming platform and it allows them to get more from their network partners now it's really interesting to note as well and it's been rumored that when formula one was partnered up with nbc and nbc sportsnet back in 2017 so in the years preceding the switch to espn in 2017 it was rumored that they were basically paying formula one bernie excellent nothing like they were at a position where Bernie couldn't get Formula One onto US TV. It was almost like the NBA in the early 80s where everything was tape delay. And they ultimately struck a deal with NBC and NBC Sportsnet, where it was basically free to air and they would just split revenue when it came to television dollars. Now, I've never been able to confirm this, but it's understood that F1 was making virtually nothing off of that TV deal. They went to ESPN in 2018, 2019. It was a two-year deal, and then they re-upped for a three-year deal. So right now, ESPN's coming close to exiting this deal, and you can promise yourself, you can promise that... uh, Liberty is going to be going to every network in the U.S., whether it's TNT, whether it's ESPN, whether it's back to NBC, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's any of the other major networks like CBS. It's really interesting. The other thing that I thought was really interesting in this article that you and I are referring to on motorsport.com by Luke Smith is, and this hadn't occurred to me, um, ESPN president of programming, Magnus Burke, I believe his name is, Burke Magnus, um, who's one of the folks that's really been the driving force behind securing F1 and finding a long-term home for it on ESPN. He acknowledged that back in the early 90s, ESPN was the home of everything, IndyCar, CART, Indy 500, NHRA, Motocross, Supercross, everything. Today, the only motorsports product on ESPN is actually Formula One, which I thought was kind of interesting. 
Mm-hmm. That that is, gosh, you know, I completely uh, forgot about that. That they they had so many different uh, properties uh, way back when. But do you remember then in the early two thousands with the advent of a uh, Speed Channel? I loved Speed Channel back in the day when when it was there. I mean, it was such a there were so many cool offerings on there. They did a good job of uh, of their Formula One uh, coverage and. When that uh, sadly, uh, you know, disappeared from you know the the, the TV landscape, that was uh, quite disappointing. But anyways, I, I I completely forgotten that they had. But I mean, I guess motorsports was in a bit of a different place uh, back in the '90s. But then I guess perhaps that the the, the whole schism with uh, the IRL and IndyCar and everything Absolutely. perhaps had a lot to, to do that. You know that they, they, they might have been some collateral damage in that uh, that whole. Uh, That's debacle. a great call. Yeah. That's yeah. a great call. Yeah. All right. Well, let's uh, move on to the next uh, story. Um, let's see. So, oh, th- this one I think you're going to like uh, because this kind of goes back uh, to the discussion that we had a little bit earlier in the show when we were talking about the whole uh, thing about um, uh, teams and Alpha, or sorry, not Alpha Romeo, but uh, Alpha Tauri and, uh, and and Red Bull. But uh, I've kind of given it away here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> anyways, it is about uh, Alpha Romeo, and uh, they've decided to make their own transmission and rear suspension rather than just uh, taking everything in from Ferrari because it hasn't really been a true B team, but they're kind of in that, uh, you know, that, that Ferrari sphere of influence that they're, they're kind of almost like a de facto B team. Just, uh, it's kind of become like a convenient, uh, kind of, um, place for Ferrari to kind of, I would say dictate, but uh, they, they've definitely had influence in that team over the past uh, couple of years with drivers and things like that, for example. Oh, absolutely. No, they are not a Haas. And let's be very clear. Haas buys everything permitted under the sporting regulations from Ferrari Mm -hmm. that they can. The chassis, which they can't buy from Ferrari, they actually outsource to Dallara. So they don't even develop their own chassis Mm -hmm. internally. But Alfa Romeo hasn't been entirely different in terms of the amount of componentry that they've sourced from Red Bull. But what we saw during the offseason was a strident effort by Alfa Romeo Sauber to demonstrate some independence in the face of Ferrari. And by that, I mean they they discarded Antonio Giovinazzi. Giovinazzi, this fantastic young Italian driver who has deeply, deeply embedded ties to Ferrari, was dismissed. He's no longer a driver with that team, replaced by Zhu, who I think is going to be fantastic this year. But once again, Alfa Romeo beginning to assert some independence. And as you spoke to, what they've decided to do for this year is, while they're going to continue to source their power unit from Ferrari, they're absolutely a Ferrari power unit customer team. They're going to develop their own rear suspension. And in doing so, uh, they also have to repackage the internals from the Ferrari gearbox. So they are, as I understand it, they are going to continue to buy gearboxes from Ferrari, but they are going to tear it down and repackage it in entirely new casing that is more compatible with the rear suspension that they're designing. Now, I, I was really perplexed by this because I think it's really cool, but the immediate thought is that, hey, look, Ferrari's this mammoth organization with infinite resources to develop suspensions and gearboxes. What makes Alfa Romeo think they could do it better than <laughs> Ferrari? And I was scrolling through a couple of forums, and I was scrolling through Reddit, and I, I saw this comment, and I wish I could give credit to the person that that said this, so I forgive me, but he'd made this really cool comment that was, if Alfa Romeo Sauber is looking for a potential super 
suitor to buy the organization, Mm -hmm. that potential suitor probably isn't going to want to be wedded to Ferrari. Mm. So if it's a potential manufacturer, for instance, or it's a potential, say, uh, former IndyCar champion that wants to become involved with (laughs) Formula One, they probably don't want to be so deeply wedded and embedded within the ecosystem that is Ferrari. So part of this could be just positioning this team for a future sale and future future independence. So I thought that was interesting and that struck me, but I think it's cool that Alfa Romeo in the world of the new regulations is seeking to be more independent from Ferrari. You know, whoever came up with or made that observation, I think that is uh, re- really, really um, astute. I think that is a really, really brilliant observation because, uh, you know, not only did you uh, raise all those uh, uh, points about the, the things that they've done that's been divergent from this whole Ferrari B-team situation, if you want to call it that, but I mean, just kind of go down the paddock a little a uh, few more garage stalls down to Williams and they've sort of been not really a B team to a Mercedes but heavily influenced uh, by 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 them they're obviously a customer team and it was last summer I mean the whole thing uh, the, the whole speculation that they were going to uh, take uh, Nick DeFries as a, as a driver for 2022 and then they went and made the completely unorthodox and completely unexpected signing of uh, Alex Albon, which was, I, I think most people, nobody saw that one coming. So it, it kind of makes you wonder, as you said, that perhaps they're trying to you know, sort of sever as many strings as possible. It kind of makes you wonder if uh, Williams is maybe doing the same thing. Because, I mean, we, we hear all those discussions about uh, VW, the VW group coming into Formula One in, in one guise or another, either as an engine manufacturer or perhaps as a constructor. And as soon as you said that, that is uh, perhaps they're trying to, or Alpha is trying to be as uh, un-Ferrari-esque as possible to be attractive to say like an, an Andretti Motorsport, right? Maybe Williams is doing the I same totally thing. Agree. So I mean that, that that is I think that's a great observation that that, that person made. Hundred percent. I think it's great. There's really two things at play here. Hmm. One is that I think these teams have this newfound sense of confidence that in the world of cost caps and simplified aero formula, they can be more competitive without having to be so wed to these bigger manufacturers. So I think that's partly at play here. And I think the other is is we're seeing valuations of these teams in the stratosphere where it's never been before at a time when you have a new manufacturer that's looking to enter the sport with not one but two brands so i think you have teams positioning themselves for a future sale and you have other teams that maybe aren't looking to find a new buyer Mm -hmm. but are just in a position where they're more confident that look you know what if ferrari can spend no more money than we can and we can spend to the cap why do we need to be so reliant on them for technology when we have the same resources that they do, or maybe not today, but tomorrow, next year, 2023, as things begin to even out as that cost cap begins to tighten. I think it's a neat era for F1. It's been really fascinating to watch, as you and I have spoken about so much over the last few months. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, time for another break, guys. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit uh, about Formula E. And of course, uh, when I say a little bit, uh, very briefly, but uh, anyways, we'll do so in just a moment. So don't go away. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
All right, welcome back to the program. And McLaren apparently are in talks with uh, potentially getting involved with the Mercedes EQ Formula E team. Um, so, I, I mean, Mercedes, I, I don't really follow Formula E all that much, not because I have anything against it. I just uh, am pressed for time. But uh, they are, yeah, they're, they're pulling out of Formula E, right? But I believe they still have a, a grid spot in the series uh, for after the, the Gen 3 era. Um, but apparently there is some sort of plan in the works for them to stay in Formula E uh, that might include some sort of like a, a Nissan customer powertrain and then uh, maybe some sort of naming with the, or, or some, some involvement of McLaren. Do you have, uh, can you explain this a little bit more for the rest of us? It's interesting. And we talk so much <laughs> about, uh, about the fact that we're big fans of Zach Brown, but McLaren, now that it seems to have stabilized its financial footing is investing in all sorts of different motorsports discipline. We, we obviously see them making significant strides in formula one. Uh, they continue to invest and they fully own now an in, in indie team, but it looks like they've got some appetite to enter formula E just at the time that some other big manufacturers, some other big teams are leaving. So we know for instance, that BMW is exiting the sport. We know that after this year, Mercedes is going to exit the sport, but the speculation mm -hmm. now is that McLaren looking for a turnkey formula one or formula E operation may simply take over the Mercedes formula EQ team. So the team is based out of Brackley, which is the Mercedes formula one headquarters. So the thought is, the expectation is that if they do buy the team, they would basically lift the people capital, move it to the McLaren Technology Center, where by all accounts, there is plenty of space to take on another racing division. So the folks, the actual team, the people, the people capital that make up that organization would migrate over to the McLaren Technology Center. Now, they're not in a position to develop a power unit on such short notice. So they would simply become a customer team of Nissan, who isn't currently supplying any teams in Formula E, but is looking for a customer team. So the Mercedes Formula E team could vanish, will vanish after the end of this year. That is in stone, but it could reemerge next year as a McLaren branded team rocking a Nissan power unit. So interesting. And just as a reminder as well, that Mercedes dominated Formula E last year by, by all expectations, they should dominate again this year. So if McLaren is able to pick up this package and bring those really talented people over to the MTC, it should probably set them up for almost immediate success in hmm. 2020. Isn't that interesting? And uh, what, what I also uh, have learned is that uh, they also have like more, um, more powerful uh, engines, uh, powertrains, or sorry, power units coming in that are going to actually reduce their lap times. And sort of, I think they're expecting what in something like five to seven seconds per lap. That's huge. That is massive. And yeah, Absolutely. They're, and they're going to do something Absolutely. like, like modify, or they're going to, sort of, I, I don't know, make some exceptions to the tracks because it's really going to be, I mean, this is like a... I guess almost a, a, a ground shaking massive shift. I mean, performance wise, that uh, perhaps these cars are going to be a little bit uh, too hot for some of the circuits that they have, right? Absolutely. And for those of you that don't watch Formula E, and I would encourage you to do so, it's a, it's a fun series. And you'll probably be familiar with a lot of the drivers if you've watched Formula One or if you've watched Formula Two, because this seems to be where a lot of them end up. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> but one of the things that started to happen over the last couple of years is these cars are evolving too quickly for the tracks that they've been driving on. And for the most part, Formula E has been a street 
circuit type of championship where most of the tracks that they race on are temporary street circuits. And that's been fine because the cars haven't been particularly powerful. Their rear, their rear engine, their rear wheel drive, they're relatively lightweight. They don't produce a ton of power. It's easy for them to rotate these cars in the corners. But the challenge now is the cars tend to find a way to get lighter while increasing in horsepower. So it's assume that the new Gen 3 cars are going to produce upwards of 350 kilowatts of power, which will simply make them too powerful and it will be too dangerous for them to run on the current tracks as configured. So Formula E is in a position now where it's going to have to revisit the type of tracks that it runs these cars on because the cars are simply becoming too powerful. Now, the cars, in terms of downforce, they're not the fastest cars in the corner, but they don't necessarily need to be on these really tight street circuits. But where they are incredibly fast, though they don't have the downforce for those high-speed corners, where they're incredibly fast is in a straight line because electric engines produce torque on mm -hmm. demand. And we talk about <clears throat> in Formula One that, hey, there's a lot of torque and they produce a ton of torque through the turbocharger, but there's always going to be a little bit of turbo lag, although the MGUH helps spin the turbine to keep that turbo lag to a minimum. But with an electric car, if you've ever driven one, there's torque on demand. You do not have to wait for that engine to rev up. You do not have to wait for that forced induction component to mm. spool. It's torque on demand. So it's going to be really interesting to see where Formula E goes over the next couple of seasons as they begin to account for the fact that the cars are significantly more powerful than the tracks that they're driving are compatible with. Well, that's why, you know, I, I still think that, uh, you know, Formula One is just going to kind of kick this, um, you know, icy, you know, internal combustion uh, engine thing down the road for a while yet to the the performance of these electric engines really comes up to what we see with uh you know conventional well, i mean i'm saying conventional uh motors and cars i mean if there's anything conventional about a, a formula one engine that's not really all that conventional obviously but you know um what, what i'm trying to get at is i i think that at, at some point the series will go electric but i think that they will wait as long as possible until the performance is is similar and if they kind of uh, um, like I say, kick that can down the road with like exotic fuels and things like that. And, and the, 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 the hybrid, uh, model, uh, you know, I think they'll try and do that as long as they, they, they need to until, uh, that, uh, you know, they have no other choice or they can seamlessly, uh, transition into something that, uh, pretty much matches the power that they have, which is still a long way off at uh, this uh, point in time. So Mark, the next thing, I, I think I'm going to let you at least run with this one because you seem to be a little bit uh, better at explaining some of these techie things, was just the uh, design of the 2022 rear wings for the new cars. And I love the look that we saw on this mock-up that they uh, released uh, last summer, this this full one-to-one -one scale uh, mock-up of a 2022 Formula One car. And I was really astounded that how clean that rear wing looked. I mean, it was very... I, I, what's the, the correct word? It really flows nicely in, in all different uh, dimensions. When you look at uh, the, the rear wing of a, of a current Formula One car or just through the years, they're big, they're clunky, they look really obtrusive. But when you look at this, or at least their interpretation of this mock-up, it, it, to me, it almost, it looks very graceful and it looks a lot different to what we've seen and what we've been uh, used to for years and decades. The really important message, I think, to take away from what we're going to experience with the 2022 cars is that the total, the overall total downforce created by the cars is 
not going to be significantly less than the cars that we saw in 2021, mm -hmm. but it's where it's generating that downforce from that is important. Significantly more downforce is going to be generated from the underbody of the car. So we've been talking a lot about underbody yeah. ground effects. Exactly. And the benefit of ground effects is that you can create downforce without spitting out a ton of dirty air, which causes turbulence, which makes it difficult for a car to follow you from behind. So what we're going to see is the cars are going to generate significantly more downforce from the underbody, from the ground effects, but where they're going to generate less downforce than they've seen in the past is going to be from the overbody, the skin of the car and the rear wing. So one of the things that's really noticeable when you look at that new rear wing is it's significantly smoother with far less sharp edges. And this is designed specifically so that that rear wing can generate some downforce. It can accommodate the DRS system, but it is going to generate minimal, minimal dirty air relative to what we've seen over the preceding couple of years. It is also now a significantly more standardized part than we've seen in years past where teams have had significant creative license when it comes to designing their rear wing. And if I'm designing a rear wing, I do not care about what's happening behind me. I just want it to be as effective as possible at doing the task it's designed to do, which is to create downforce. Now, the Formula One body, the FIA is coming and saying, no, 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 no. We recognize that the rear wings that we're using today create a ton of dirty air. They create a ton mm -hmm. of turbulent air for the car that's following. You are going to design them to this spec. So they've smoothed the edges, they've changed the nature of the wing, and it's designed so it can continue to accomplish what it needs to do from a safety perspective in terms of keeping that car planted. But it's going to do so while generating far, far less dirty air. And the challenge with the dirty air and the turbulence that you and I have spoken about before is it makes that car that's following 10, 20, 30 meters behind, it makes it much, 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 much more difficult for those cars mm -hmm. to follow because they're driving straight into that dirty air. They're not getting a pocket of clean air. Now, that new design is going to create a much bigger pocket of clean air between the car that's in front and the car that's following, which should make it easier for them to pull out and pass because they're not stuck in that pocket of dirty air. They should be following in a pocket of clean air. Formula One, the website had a really great article a couple of days ago that spoke about this, that talked about mm -hmm. the design, that talked about the fact that they've cleaned up the end plates. Really interesting. But just another thing for us to look at this year that while the cars may look more simplified at the skin on the surface, everything that we can see, the underbody of the car is going to be significantly more complex than anything yeah. that we've seen in decades, really. Well, that's the thing. Like, uh, as much as I'm looking forward to seeing what these new cars look like, I'm also very interested to see, you know, if we can get a look at the the underside of these uh, these cars and see how they're they're going to oh, be funneling the air underneath. Me too. Because I, I think that is just a, an absolutely fascinating um, aspect to this, uh, this, this whole new era in Formula One. And just kind of going back to that mock-up uh, that they uh, came out with last year I mean it looked really really cool but it, just in general but looking at that rear wing and I'm looking at uh, at a rear shot of, the, of this car right now and the first thing the, the first word that sort of like pops into my mind when I look at this uh, the, this proposed rear wing or the Formula One's interpretation of it is it looks aerospace I mean it doesn't look like something you'd see on, on a racing car so it looks very very revolutionary and I, I'm really curious to see that uh you know, is is this what the teams themselves, is this going to be their interpretation as well? And if so, are they all going to be the same or are they going to be different, uh, you know, different?
different designs up and down the grid. I think it's going to be really, really cool. And the one thing is too is um, they, they are going to be running the DRS at least for 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 the interim, and it'll be. I just can't wait till they get rid of it. I mean, I, I hope they find in short order that they don't need it because I, I just um, I guess I need to see the new cars number one to see how they look because I just can't see how it uh, really would. Uh, how it would really look? I mean, it just—it seems like it would wouldn't function properly on this mock-up, but maybe um, that was designed in such a way that it wouldn't be implement or included in it. Anyways, very very exciting uh, to see. And uh, again, like we said, what about like five times already on the show that we're so close now to uh, <laughs> to these first releases. That's why this has to release for the livery uh, on Friday is going to be such a. Such, uh, I would say, a, a cheat, but it's going to be a bit of a letdown. I mean, it's going to be even worse if they come back. It's like rich energy again, because that was such a debacle a couple of years ago. Anyways, I mean, it looked great. I mean, that black and gold. I mean, it looked it looked off, uh, awesome, but, you know, that was, uh, you know, we don't need to dive back into that one again. Anyways. I'll just add as well quickly on that Haas, and I should have mentioned this off the top. The launch, by the way, is at 3 p.m. 3 a.m. Pacific time, 6 a.m., Eastern Standard Time. So for a team that is supposed to be the American <laughs> Formula One team, it's a little odd that their livery reveal is going to be at 3 a.m. Pacific Time, 6 a.m. Eastern Standard yeah, Time. Exactly. It's all well. Say <laughs> la vie, my friend. Well, what, what more do I have to add? Nothing. Anyways, guys, keep your hand on the wheel. Don't uh, drop the clutch. Time for a break. We'll be back in just a moment. Okay, welcome back. And uh, still plenty of things uh, to talk about, uh, starting uh, with this one. But uh, Sky uh, Broadcasting the UK has announced that they're going to donate £1 million to Lewis Hamilton's Mission 44 charity to, quote, help tackle high rates of school exclusions among black students as part of a two-year partnership, end quote. That is uh, awesome, and that is a big, big investment. Uh, good for them uh, for, for stepping up. Okay, next story. We're not quite into, like, the, the, the fast. Uh, the little snappy stories we have to at the, the at the end of the show, but this is uh, interesting again, uh, kind of a, a techie story. But um, the the engine freeze and its impact that it could have in uh, in Formula One for for twenty twenty two. And let's not uh, forget this the the whole reason that uh, that Red Bull have their own engines. <sighs> They're not really their own engines. They're they're still Honda engines. <laughs> you know, this Honda has not left Formula One people. They are basically, as Mark said last week, they are supplying Red Bull with unbranded Honda engines that they get to call whatever the hell they want. I mean, uh, yeah, wrap your mind around that one. Anyways, Mark, do you want to talk about uh, the big impact that uh, that the engine freeze is going to have for 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 2022 and 23, 24, and 25 potentially? Definitely. So what we do know is that Formula One had made a commitment to the teams and the teams had agreed that they would put a freeze on engine development, which means that after a specific date, which I will share T in a couple <laughs> of seconds, that after a certain date, teams will effectively be prohibited from continuing to develop their power units. So the power units that are in the cars today are effectively an evolution of the power units that they started out with back in 2014. So the power unit in the Alpine, was really born in that 2014 Red Bull car. The power unit that's in the Red Bull car today was really born in that 2015 mm. McLaren. And the teams continue to innovate and innovate and innovate year over year over year. And they continue to deploy new components and turbochargers and MGUHs and battery stores. 
All of that is about to come to an end. So there are two freeze dates or two dates that we really need to take notice of here. The first is March 1st. On March 1st, the internal combustion engine, the turbocharger, the MGUH, the exhaust system, engine oil and fuel specifications are going to be frozen. Now on September 1st, the MGUK, the energy store and control electronics will be frozen. So what we're going to see is a staggered freeze approach. So whatever internal combustion engine, turbocharger, MGUH, exhaust, et cetera, that teams are rocking on March 1st becomes frozen. After those two dates, only in the most extreme circumstances, writes Matt Summerfield for motorsport.com. Only in the most extreme circumstances, such as a manufacturer being so far behind its rivals that there is no chance of them catching up, can they go back to innovating. And even then, it has to be only with the consensus of the entire regulatory body. So as of the first, those core components that I described, the internal combustion engine, turbocharger, MGUH exhaust, et cetera, those will be frozen. And then on September 1st, the MGUK energy store control electronics will be frozen. So a lot of the teams are already there. A lot of the teams have no upgrades left. A lot of the teams, and we saw this last year with Ferrari, we saw this last year with Red Bull and the Honda battery store that they rolled out for the Belgian Grand Prix. A lot of the teams have already delivered those upgrades because what a lot of the teams tried to do was roll out those upgrades that they'd expected to get in right before these two deadlines. They actually rolled them out during mm-hmm. season last yep. year. We saw this with Ferrari. They delivered some big power unit upgrades in the second half of the season. The reason for that was because they wanted to get some real-time data during the races, during qualifying, during free practice. So if there was anything amiss, if there was further design changes needed, they'd have time to do it. What they didn't want to do was roll out these updated components right at the deadline and not have the ability to go back and tweak and continue to innovate on them if there was any imperfections or design flaws. So we saw a ton of teams rush out final design standards last year. I don't think we're going to see a lot. I'm pretty confident that what we saw on the grid in the final race last year is what we're going to see during winter testing mm-hmm. in Barcelona. But but there could be a few surprises out there. But yeah, March 1st and September 1st are the dates that we want to watch because after September 1st, these engines are locked in until 2026 when we get an entirely new engine. Yeah, formula. I think that it was a, a great uh, reference that you made that uh, Ferrari um, trying out and uh, putting these new uh, bits and pieces onto their cars, into their engines uh, in the second half of last year at, for, for both Charles and Carlos. And I really love the foresight that they have because, you know, if you're having issues, better to do it then when you still have the, the, the luxury of time and you have the, the opportunity to figure out, okay, well, this did not work the way that we, we expected it to, to work. We have to figure out why rather than being up against that hard date. And then you're going to have to struggle with that for, for, for a long, long time. So, yeah, I mean, it, it really, really is a fascinating era that we're about to, to, to enter with these brand new cars and then basically these engines that are going to be locked in for the next uh, several years. And, you know, I, I mean, it took a long time to get to this point where we are going to see these new cars literally roll out in front of us, uh, you know, literally just days from us uh, in front of us now. And I, I just uh, kind of feel almost a, a sense of deja vu with like uh, the, the the engines that will come in in 2026 that we will at some point find out, okay, this is our vision. This is what we're going with for 2026 in the future. And then we're going to have like this wait of several years to, to, to get there. So it's uh, going to be kind of uh, interesting in, in that way. All right. Do you mind, I do by the way, mind. before I we d- move No, on, I don't. Go do ahead. Mind, oh, I've got, <laughs> okay, I've got go a good ahead. story, though. 
I'm actually going to share, and this is because somebody was just messaging me this as a reminder. I'm going it to share a little the, bit the, of NASCAR the WhatsApp, by the way. And <laughs> it was definitely not you because I typically put that on mute until after the show. But uh, a little bit of NASCAR oh, cool. news. So for those of you that follow NASCAR, they are going through something very similar to Formula One. And I'm trying to I'm trying to get grounded in the world of NASCAR and learn a little bit more about it and stop being so ignorant. But they are going through a similar evolutionary change. They are incorporating a new next generation car. It's going to have a rear diffuser, a new aero surfaces, and an independent rear suspension, which is really cool because they've had a fixed suspension for decades and decades and decades. But they are going to kick off their preseason with a real Really cool concept. They have actually gone to the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, previously the host of two summer games, including 1984, previously a, a stadium that's hosted NFL teams. They are actually laying or have laid tarmac in the Los Angeles Memorial Coliseum, and they're going to run an exhibition cool. event on Sunday, February 6th at 6 p.m. Pacific time. It is going to be an extremely small oval. It's going to be about a quarter of a mile, and I believe they're going to run 150 laps, which equals out to about 37.5 miles. But even if you're not a NASCAR fan, I think it's probably worth mm -hmm. checking that out because I think yep. it's kind of cool. It's an exhibition event before they get to Daytona the week after or two weeks after that, but still a neat concept. And again, NASCAR was on top of the world 15 years ago, has really struggled financially relative to where it was during that period in the last couple of years. But it's cool to see any discipline of motorsport trying to trying to innovate and attract new fans. But if I lived in Los Angeles, even though I'm not a big NASCAR fan, that is something I be definitely pretty cool. would have checked yep. out. It's kind of cool to be able to sit in a football stadium and watch everything happen right in front of you, even if it is a tiny quarter mile Oval. But yeah, just something thought, cool. Did you I also I see share. that other video that was uh, circulating uh, the last couple of days is one of those uh, extreme Red Bull cool things with uh, it was Max and this, uh, I, don't, I don't really know about this uh, this ice racing, but it was at Zalamze in Austria. They, they basically were on one of these ice tracks. And uh, so it was uh, this uh, motorcycle, with all the spiky uh, tires, and then Max in an older Red Bull with like the, the normally aspirated engine in it. He had like these big studded tires and they were going, it was cool. Go, go search it up on the Red Bull uh, channel on on YouTube. It was it was pretty neat. It just was one of the things that uh, popped up. I saw it on Twitter at lunchtime, and I checked it. It was it was pretty cool. There was a lot of uh, whoops and yelling and hollering on the radios, and I, I think that uh, they were having a lot of fun. It looked uh, it looked uh, pretty cool and pretty on brand for the kind of things that uh, that Red Bull uh, try to do. Anyways, uh, one of our Fernando's uh, classic Renaults is uh, set to be uh, auctioned off by Sotheby's in London uh, on, uh, well, well, actually the, the, the bids were accepted in Paris uh, just uh, earlier this week. Unfortunately... I'm not the hugest Fernando fan, but I wouldn't mind having this, uh, you know, on display somewhere. But unfortunately for me, I don't have the expected 300 to 385,000 pounds, which is uh, what um, Sotheby's uh, believe it will finally set, you know, sell for once all the bids uh, come in. So the creature is uh, Alonso's own uh, specially tailored uh, steering wheel. And it's uh, got the, well, I mean, it's still got the race livery on it when it was, uh, he drove the car in China, Japan, and Brazil that year. It is a, a three liter V10 Renault. Um, oh, sorry. Uh, what am I looking at? Uh, no, I'm got things all mixed up. Anyways, actually, he did drive this in Abu Dhabi uh, this year, uh, doing uh, some, um, 
some demo on it. Yeah, so it was a three liter V10 uh, car. I mean, very, very cool. I mean, uh, it was basically the... Um, this is what I think of, sort of like classic Fernando when he ran off those two world championships in 2005 and 2006. I mean, it's got that uh, that beautiful uh, French blue on it, the yellow on it. I, I mean, it looks like a Renault. It's, a, it's just a, a really, really nice looking car. Dude, we are living through an era where sports memorabilia has never been more valuable, whether it's jerseys or sports cards. We're seeing it everywhere, man. I... I I have to think that there will be a a class of people that can afford it that are going to drive the value of driven Formula One cars through the stratosphere. Man, we are seeing trading cards go for a million dollars. In this case, for under a million dollars, you can buy an actual... not. Formula One racing car, not a wheel, not a race used helmet, a Formula One racing car. So they're expecting that, like you said, this is going to go for between three and 400,000 pounds. I got to think if this doesn't go for a million, mm-hmm. I would be shocked. If I had the money, I would do everything in my power to buy a Formula One car because if they're not worth it today, they'll definitely be worth it tomorrow. Now, I guess the one challenge with a Formula One racing car is unlike a trading car that you can just stick in your safe, you got to store it somewhere. Put in a climate control space and it has to be nursed and somebody, even if it's never driven, even if you're lucky enough to get one with an engine, the engine has to be serviced, the suspension has to be serviced, it has to be detailed. I think there's a lot of work that goes into owning a Formula One car, but still, that said, 300 to 400,000 pounds is a bargain for this car. Even though it wasn't one of his championship cars from 05 or 06, like you mentioned, it's still a great looking car, despite the fact that that was the era of horrible, horrible groups. You know, the, the one thing I always uh, think about is that uh, these uh, turbo hybrid cars that, uh, that have been obviously, um, you know, in Formula One for the past almost decade now, is what does that mean for the future of like these historic Formula One or historic um, racing series? I mean, you see like a lot of um, cars from like the 70s, the 80s, the 90s and whatnot racing in these historical Formula One events. And I just wonder, are the cars getting too technologically advanced? I mean, this is a normally aspirated V10. I mean, it's it's still not just something you can hop into and, and go and drive. But I mean, technologically speaking, it is a little bit less complex than a, than a 1.5 liter V6 turbo hybrid engine, regardless if it's a Mercedes, Ferrari, Renault, Honda, whatever. So I've, I've just often wondered what that will do for those th- those sorts of things or like the, the Festival of Speed at Goodwood or whatever it might be. There was an episode of Top Gear back in, I think, 07 or 08, and they stuck Richard Hammond in a 2006 Renault car, one of Fernando Alonso's championship-winning cars. And it was a really good episode because it showed that you can't just roll one of these things out and stick a key in it and turn it. Like, it's an entire team of engineers and mechanics that have Mm -hmm. to be on site to manage the car. And they spoke to the fact that you can't simply turn on the car because the engine tolerances are such that it can't run with cool or cold oil. They have to intravenously feed <laughs> preheated oil into the engine before you That's can crazy. turn it on in on. And that was a V8, right? It's uh yeah, it was a definitely a different era. And to your point, like the engines that are in these things now are incredibly complex. And one thing that I have heard is oftentimes for folks that do have the opportunity to buy a Formula One car, oftentimes it's sans yeah. engine. 
the the actual teams will not sell the cars with the engine. So sometimes what folks will do is they'll buy the car and it simply becomes a showpiece, or they'll have it retrofit to put in a standardized rear engine turnkey V8 or something like that if mm-hmm. they did want to track it. But you're right, nobody's going to be taking a 1.6 liter V6 hybrid out to the Goodwood Festival of Speed in 20 years because it's simply going to be too oh, exactly to start right. that engine. But uh, just before we move on to the last couple of stories here, Mark, uh, you know th- this isn't the only cool thing on the uh, the auction block. Uh, this week, a bunch of uh, classic uh, Ferraris, including a 1975 uh, Ferrari Dino 308 GT4 and a 1950, uh, sorry, 1959 250 uh, GT Series 2 Cabriolet. So, yeah, I mean, those are going to go in the millions, I would think, by the time, uh, you know, the auctioneer, you know, drops his gavel, wraps his gavel. Uh, I think Sotheby's will probably do all right out of this uh, little auction of theirs. Now, I've been tripping over my tongue and my notes uh, all uh, all night long and it's not going to get any easier what with the announcement that Aston Martin has officially changed their team name. <sighs> I'm going to take a couple of deep breaths here. I'm maybe I'm hyperventilating uh, already, but uh, they are now going to be called uh, let me see where the hell did it go here. They are now the Aston Martin Aramco Cognizant Formula 1 trademark team the tm is you know part of the formula one thing but i'm being over dramatic here but aston martin aramco cognizant formula one team wow that is a mouthful you're not even going to try and take it on you have no comments (laughs) i'm surprised no but i mean it is it is interesting how deeply Saudi Aramco is becoming involved with the sport. They are a title sponsor. They are a sponsor of the Jeddah event. Uh, They have their branding all over the series. And again, I'm not going to comment on whether it's good or bad because that's an entirely different conversation. But it is interesting that despite how heavily involved they are with the championship, that they still went as far as to partner as a title sponsor with with the Aston Martin team, I, I was I was surprised. I was both surprised and not surprised by this. Same. Surprised yeah. that they felt they needed to, and and not surprised because they simply have clearly have the capital to splash around in their bid to become one of the preeminent sponsors of the Formula yeah, One. Yeah, well, I mean, a, a release from uh, the Aston Martin team said, "quote uh, the, the the partnership this is will quote drive the development of highly efficient internal combustion engines." high-performance sustainable fuels, advanced lubricants, and the deployment of non-metallic materials in vehicles, end quote. Gosh, I mean, if uh, the name itself isn't a mouthful, that little blurb certainly was. But yeah, very interesting uh, that they really are going all in in almost all aspects of uh, Formula One. Okay, so Alex Albon is going to use uh, the Thai flag as uh, the world's, uh, what is it, WADA? What does WADA stand for again? The, uh, the, the... World anti doping. Yes, you are correct. I, I sh- I, Let's go with that. I, I, I should that. know this. Uh, sadly, being uh, you know a, a fan of cycling, I mean, I, I obviously don't dope because I don't need to. Own, but uh, you know, cycling has sadly had its uh, you know scandals. Let's uh, put it this way. Anyways, uh, Wada announced that Thailand's national anti doping organization NADO. Here you go. There's uh, more acronyms. Had been found to be non-compliant with uh, Wada's uh, doping code, which led to the implementation of sanctions. So that meant at the time that uh, WADA said that the Thai flag could not be flown at regional continental world championships or events organized by major event organizations other than at the Olympic Games and the 
Paralympic Games for the next edition of that event or until reinstatement. So Alex Albon, um, he's, uh, what, is his mother Thai? I can't remember. Yeah, I believe she is. Yeah. But uh, he has raced uh, under the Thai flag uh, throughout uh, his um, fairly brief uh, brief uh, career um, in Formula One. But uh, he uh, he does have um, dual uh, citizenship uh, with uh, in the UK and uh, Thailand. So I think that's uh, kind of cool that uh, he'll be able to to do so uh, properly. And uh, Rocky uh, just uh, confirmed in the live chat that it is the World Anti Doping uh, Agency. But uh, WADA certainly rolls off the tongue a little bit uh, easier than uh, the Aston Martin Cognizant uh, Aramco Formula One trademark team, <laughs> whatever it was. But anyways, I kid, I kid. All right. So finally, oh, you had to do this, you horrible person. You had to sneak in that one COVID story right at the very end. There were you right at the very so end. So and so, we're going to have to talk after the uh, after the show here. <laughs> I thought we were going to get away without without one COVID oh, story this year. We, and for everyone listening at home, I I am subjected to a post podcast debrief every week where we watch video replays of where I screwed up, and I am co- quote unquote coach to ensure I don't make those same well, errors. You're very kind to mention so that I don't tie you to a list. chair and shine a bright light in your face, and we go through like the. Only because we're not in the same place. <laughs> this is true. I mean, that doesn't happen, but in this case, it probably would. But anyways, I joke. Anyways, uh, Formula One is going to make uh, COVID-19 vaccination mandatory for all personnel this year. So, Good. yeah, Good. I mean, uh, I guess it is a sign of the time. I mean, what with, uh, you know, the, the, the people in Formula One country hopping as much as they do, it just uh, makes uh, sense, you know. So it, it is what it is. You know, it just, uh, it, it, it's a sign of the time. And let, let's hope. If Sorry. there is any chance that it can fend off the infection of one of the drivers and the compro and the championship isn't compromised, despite all the obvious health benefits, if if it helps to preserve the sure. integrity of the championship by helping drivers not get sick as they are going from continent to continent, country to country, it's not. A yeah, bad and thing. I mean, uh, last year, I mean, we still uh, heard uh, stories here and there of drivers testing positive and team personnel uh, testing positive. Let Let's just hope that. This uh, might uh, once and for all <laughs> be the the beginning of the end of this thing. Oh, this is kind of cool. Uh, Rocky uh, just uh, said in the, uh, the the live chat that he was a, a pro cyclist in the early two uh, thousand. So that's uh, that's cool. That's uh, good uh, good stuff there. I mean, I'm a big uh, cycling fan, a uh, cyclist myself, weekend warrior, and nothing uh, nothing on Rocky's uh, level, but uh, cool nonetheless. Anyways, that is all I've got. I've got no more corny memes. I've got no no more Rick rolling to do. I'm not going to trip over my tongue or my notes anymore. I'm going to get out. I mean, the going isn't good anymore, but I'm going to try and get out of here and salvage what little dignity I have left and go and sit in the corner and think about where I went wrong in my life for a couple of hours until I fall asleep. So whichever comes first. (laughs) Anyways, what about you, sir? You're grinning from ear to ear here. So either you, I struck a chord and made a funny joke or you're just laughing at how sad of a person (laughs) I am. What about you, sir? Anything (laughs) else to add or is it uh, time to dim the lights and, uh, and, and, and get out of here for another week? 
I'm good to go, and I think our listeners are good to go. The great news is when we're back at this time next week, we are going to actually be talking about 2022 Formula One cars, and I think that's something Absolutely. we can all be excited about. All right, well, guys, uh, thank you so very much uh, for listening to the show again uh, this week. Uh, thank you uh, for your tweets, uh, your emails. Thank you for getting in touch. Uh, best way to get uh, to send anything to us is on Twitter at ScooteryF1Pod or via email at ScooteryF1Pod at gmail.com. That's it. That's a wrap. Have a great weekend. And- And we'll talk to you guys again very, very soon. Bye for now.